This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today in studio, we have Mitchell Robinson, conservation education manager at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. Located in Holly Springs, Strawberry Plains is a place where nature and history meet. So we'll be talking all about the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center and also their upcoming Hummingbird Festival. And if you need any uh, pet questions answered, Dr. Major is here to help out. So join the conversation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And as always, if you miss Creature Comforts uh, on your Thursday, you can always catch the repeat every Saturday morning at 6. I want to say a good morning to you guys. How's everybody this morning? Very good. Doing good. Good morning. Yeah, I want to say, great. want to say a welcome back to Miss Hartfield. Mm, glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, we're glad to always have you in studio. Missed you the past couple of weeks, but I think we managed. Oh, you always <laughs> manage very well. Yes, and well, I like to listen to the podcast. Well, we appreciate that. We appreciate that. And now that you're back, uh, let's see if we do we have any events happening um, with the museum. Yeah, I've gotten. Uh, I guess to start off though, um, the Smithsonian Traveling Exhibit Waterways. And if you remember, we talked about it being on the Gulf Coast at the Pascagoula River Natural or um, Nature Center for a while. Now it's um, going to Clarksdale, Mississippi. Okay. Uh, the uh, Quapaw Canoe Company is hosting it there in downtown Clarksdale. And it's a really cool exhibit. I got to see it on the coast, but I'm going to go up and see it again. Be there for the opening festivities, August the 31st. And the exhibit will remain there in Clarksdale through October the 13th. But it's a real cool exhibit, and it's um, all about how people and communities connect with water, the importance of water, the particularly importance of clean, free-flowing water. Okay. And... Uh, in Clark, you know, they're going to do it their own way in the Delta. <laughs> they're going to talk about the connections of the Mississippi River with um, all kinds of events, food and music and art. And so there's going to be a lot of music. Super Chicken's going to be there at the opening okay. event. <laughs> it's all free and open to the public. And um, it sounds like it's going to be great fun. And uh, both Clarksdale and Helena is going to be involved, too. You know, they like to stretch across that river and uh, do some events in Helena. And then at the Natural Science Museum here in Jackson, uh, the Ripley's Believe It or Not exhibit. This is what we're in the last few weeks. So if you want to see that, you need to get on over there. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, and then I got a reminder from the state parks about the nature trails. You know, these cool mornings. Have they it really may be tricking me, but I yeah I spent most of the day outside the yesterday. Nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I'm about to go down on the Pearl River when I get <laughs> off off air, and uh, it, it seems like it's about time for us to get back outdoors and not worry too much about mosquitoes. But watch out for mosquitoes still, because I noticed the Department of Health. Uh, still reporting some West, West Nile. Nile. Yeah, yeah. So do use your mosquito protection and be sensible. But um, 
dusk is the main time when you have to worry about that. About the mosquitoes yeah. being out. Yeah. yeah, right now while it's still cool out there. So anyway, remember trails at um, most of the state parks and wildlife management areas and the wildlife refuges around the state. We've got lots of nice places to get outside in Mississippi. Yeah, these mornings have really been a treat. I know it's kind of like a mirage. It's going to be 90 <laughs> degrees at 6 in the morning some days. But um, Also, um, we got the Hummingbird Festival coming up. We're going to talk about that yes. with uh, Strawberry Plains. Like I said, we have our guest uh, Mitchell Robinson here, and um, also Dr. Major is here for your pet questions. So join the conversation, one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I promise we're gonna to get to you, Mitch. But let's uh have a pet question come over our email um um since our last program, Doctor Major. And I know we were talking about the different um, breeds of dogs, and we had one come in and say, "What about the South African Massif, the Borbell? Is that, did I say that right?" That's pretty close. Okay, because <laughs> I, I, I had never clo- heard of it. Well, that's as close as I can imagine. And uh, here's the thing with any of these dogs. This is a huge dog. That's what uh, I thought. Them, yeah. uh, I, I would be wrong if I gave you the average weights, but I know a lot of the uh, bigger bigger dogs are over 150. So they're, they're big, big dogs, uh, probably originally designed to protect the farmstead uh, in South Africa. Uh, they... If someone here had one, first of all, check your local regulations. Be sure that uh, that type dog is not outlawed. But if you had one, I would definitely say you need to uh, do adequate training, uh, obedience training, and be able to handle the dog. Not everybody can handle a dog that weighs over 100 pounds or even less than that. So they probably have some aggression tendencies, because they were more designed for game, but at the same time, uh, we've there are a few in the country, and there may be a Borbell Association here in the United States. I don't know, but uh, they they're a beautiful dog and very big. I don't even understand a one hundred and fifty pounds, Doctor Major. <laughs> That's uh, there. There are a lot of dogs. That can, a lot of the Mastiff dogs can get that big. Uh, That's uh, the English Mastiff, especially. Uh, some of those dogs are over 200 pounds. So we're talking about big dogs in those cases. That is a big dog. And, um, Mitch, I, I found out you have some dogs. Do you have a, you don't have a massive, do you? No, I've got two <laughs> Mississippi mutts. <so. laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's like me. And she, she's 60, and that's, a, that's about enough for me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we have Mitch Robinson here, Conservation Education Manager at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center in Holly Springs. Appreciate you for making the trip this morning. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Yeah, glad you could be here. We love when our guests are in studio. Um, we were talking off mic. We've had you often times on the phone on multiple shows uh doing a little bit of pr uh you know telling people about the the audubon center but for somebody who has not been there um can you just you know tell us what the strawberry plains audubon center is and what what you guys do absolutely so strawberry plains uh, actually started 20 years ago uh, back in 1998 um two sisters from holly springs mississippi bequeathed uh land as well as their assets to the national audubon society and so our property is quite unique in terms of Audubon centers, we're about 3,000 acres. It's on a former cotton plantation that used to be Chickasaw Indian land and has since gone through natural uh, recession back to native habitats as well as what we've uh, planted and 
manage for there. And so the big thing we're known for in the state is our Hummingbird Festival, which is coming up uh, here in just a few weeks. Uh, this year will actually be the 19th festival that we've had. And so we use that event um, and the magnetism of hummingbirds to bring people out that uh, otherwise may not know about the property, uh, but might be enticed by hummingbirds and use um, that platform to educate them not only about hummingbirds, but also the importance of native plants that hummingbirds are dependent on, as well as other wildlife native to our area. And it's a whole three days just full of different activities. Yeah, if you go to uh, strawberry.audubon.org, you have a beautiful picture of a ruby-throated hummingbird just right there on the front. So like you said, the magnetism of of the hummingbirds and uh, where nature meets history. That's funny. I didn't know um, it was, a what you say, a former um, cotton plantation. Yeah, yeah, that area of Marshall County. uh, Marshall County itself was actually the highest cotton-producing county in the state and in the nation at one time. And so... You wouldn't know it if you came to Holly Springs today. It's quite a sleepy town, but at one time it was quite prominent within the state, and uh, it really kind of gets excited again for this weekend. We'll have close to six to seven thousand people over three days, which actually doubles the population of that little town. And uh, um, I guess the Audubon Center, Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, is part of a bigger Audubon Society. Absolutely, yeah. We are part of the National Audubon Society, and Mississippi is very, very fortunate that we have two Audubon Centers. Um, our center in Holly Springs, Strawberry Plains, and our sister center down on the coast in Moss Point called Pascagoula River Audubon Center. And we're one of about, or I guess two of about uh, 40 centers in the country. And so pretty unique for Mississippi to have two centers in our state. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, um, I guess, very fortunate for us. We Mississippi is a I guess a sleeper when it comes to nature. People don't think about it, but we are very rich uh, in that. Um, but we were talking about the hummingbirds, but there are also plenty of other birds that come through Strawberry Plains, correct? Absolutely, yeah. We've had close to 300 species documented through there. Um, we do lots of research. Uh, we've actually been ticking that up the past two years. We've been doing breeding, or excuse me, um, migratory bird uh, banding surveys, uh, through a program called uh, MAPS. And so we've done that for two summers now. Um, but one of the things that's unique to the property is it's it's a flyway along the Mississippi River, just as our, our center on the coast. And um, it's used by ruby-throated hummingbirds specifically during their fall migration. And so we time the festival during uh, that fall migration when they're really peaking coming through. And so um, around late August, early September is when that really starts to tick up. And this is uh, the Ruby, the Hummingbird, <laughs> Ruby Throated Hummingbird Festival. The Hummingbird Festival is coming, uh, what, the 6th and 7th? 7th, 8th, and 9th. 7th, 8th, and 9th. It's always 7th. the weekend after Labor Day. Okay. All and right. that's how we kind of time it. You know, the birds don't follow the calendar, but uh, in terms of when it falls, that's, that's usually the closest. Yeah, that's always amazing to me how the birds know when it's time to do what they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they the days start getting shorter, and that's when they start migrating. You know, um, the, the flowers, different things bloom throughout the year, and, you know, we can talk about this later. But hummingbirds, you know, they feed mostly on insects. The nectar is really just what keeps their bodies going in terms of their, their heart rates. But um, they're coming through during uh, late August. They'll start uh, peaking in numbers, and... Um, What's really unique about the fall migration is is people wonder where all these hummingbirds came from. And uh, the life cycle of a hummingbird is only a few years, three to four years. And most of them actually won't make uh, their first year after being born. And so when you see these tick up in birds in the fall, uh, what you're seeing is, you know, a double in the population of the number of of fledglings that have left the nest. Sometimes hummingbirds can have more than one nest in in a season. And so all of those babies are migrating with the adults that, you know, had bred them as well. 
All right, we're going to go ahead and take our first break for the hour. If you want to join the conversation, we're talking with Mitchell Robinson, Conservation Education Manager at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. Also, Dr. Major is here for any pet questions. Give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We're going to be here talking throughout the hour about Strawberry Plains Audubon Center and their upcoming Hummingbird Festival. So if you have any questions, make sure you do give us a call. one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. This is Animal uh <laughs> this is Creature Conference here on MPB Think Radio. Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman sitting here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And we also have our guests in the building from Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, Mitchell Robinson, Conservation Education Manager. And if you want to join the conversation, give us a call or, or uh, with a question or comment, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 672 7464 Or send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, we have a, a caller on the line, and let's talk with Marsha from Vicksburg. Good morning, Marsha. How are you doing? Good morning. Fine. How are you? Oh, we're doing fine here in the studio. What's your question to come in today? Well, we have a 50-pound hound dog mix dog, and he's really nosy. He likes to see what's going on in the neighborhood. We have a small fenced-in backyard, but we were thinking about putting that electric fencing uh, across part of the front yard. Do you know anything about that, and can you recommend any kind, particular kind to get? Are you talking about the invisible fence where you bury uh, wires underground? Yes, and the dog yeah, has a yes. thing on his collar. Right, and there are all kinds of uh, directions to do that. Some of the systems are quite, uh, what should I say, inexpensive. Uh, you could do them yourself. I believe there's a company in Vicksburg that uh, actually does the invisible fence uh, installation. With dogs that uh, first start using this, you have to uh, adjust the the trigger, if you will, the collar that gives an impulse when it gets close to the wire, uh, and it works quite well. The only real problem I see with the invisible fence, you can't keep other dogs out. Mm-hmm. So uh, it can keep your dog in the yard, though, and it is quite effective in a lot of cases. Okay. Okay, and there's a company here in Vicksburg that As, installs it? As I remember, yes, I've seen a brochure from that, but if they're still in business, I'm pretty sure there is one. The other places to check would be online for self-installation, and also you have a, uh, like, feed store or a co-op 
there in Vicksburg, they might have that as well. So check with them and see. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, that question this morning, Marsha. And if you have a pet question or um, want to talk about maybe your visit to the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring um, Mitchell, we were talking about the Hummingbird Festival, which is coming up the 7th, 8th, and 9th mm-hmm. of uh, September. And um, what actually attracts the hummingbirds? I guess this it's a flyaway, but the native plants play a role. Yeah, the habitat is really important. Um, so for hummingbirds themselves, um, their their diet consists of nectar, of course, to be able to keep their heart rates going. You know, they can beat anywhere from uh, 1,250 beats a minute when they're in full flight to slowing down to 50 to 80 beats a minute. Like um, they're always on the energy drink. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they can't, you know, they're, they're always flying or they're perched. They can't walk or anything like that. Um, their their evolution is, is quite unique. Um but the, the birds themselves um, feed, like I said, on insects um, a lot of the time, and, and particularly when they are, are feeding their young. And so that's a lot of their fuel um, for their day-to-day. But to be able to, to burn those calories to move at the speed that they do, they have to have nectar. And so uh, coming through our area, we have a variety of native plants uh, providing food sources for the insects that they feed on, as well as different what we call pollinator plants, uh, things like jewelweed, um, our native honeysuckle, not to be confused with the white and yellow honeysuckle, that's Japanese honeysuckle. Um, that's part of our, our mission at Strawberry Plains as well as for Audubon. Uh, we have a program that's called Plants for Birds, and we had talked earlier off the air about uh, creating the world's largest bird sanctuary. The idea being that anyone uh, that has a backyard or even a patio on your apartment complex can put out native plants to support uh, birds for, for nectar sources for hummingbirds, but more importantly, the insects that birds feed on. Um, about 96% of our terrestrial birds in the United States feed on insects uh, exclusively when they're feeding their young. And we often get asked, you know, where did my hummingbirds go, particularly around May or so? You'll have lots of birds showing up in the spring migration, and then they seem to disappear. And it's not that they left, it's just that the females themselves are moving to other areas, uh, oftentimes to wetlands or places that have better uh, cover for um, building their own nest. Uh, as I tell kids all the time, that the dads are deadbeats in the hummingbird world. All they do is breed and fight. Uh, but the, the females raise the young all by themselves. Uh, they'll have two eggs two weeks apart, and those babies will actually be born two days apart. And they'll feed their babies exclusively insects for the um, first while while they're in the nest. And so uh, those females, when you're wondering where they went, well, they're no longer coming to the nectar sources because they need to feed those proteins to their, their babies. And I also always tell kids, too, which sometimes how you explain things to kids translate really well to adults. But um, if you don't like spiders, then you don't like hummingbirds because spider webs are um, not just critical. They are necessary for hummingbird nests. Uh, Hummingbird babies are about the size when they're in an egg, about the size of a jelly bean. And they're going to expand or grow and expand their nest to be actually bigger than the adults by the time that they fledge and leave the nest. So to find something small enough in nature like a twig that can expand like that. It doesn't really exist. And so spider webs are crucial for holding those nests together. And then spiders themselves are a huge diet source, along with mosquitoes, gnats, fruit flies for hummingbirds. And that little nest looks about like a walnut shape yes. <laughs> when it starts out. And it's really cool. Yeah, and it's amazing how much, you know, hummingbirds, they're, they're so fast, but the, the size of proportions for them is really fascinating. You know, 
other things with kids will often drop a penny in their hand and say, you know, this is about the weight of a hummingbird, about two to three grams. But within the two or three days they're at Strawberry Plains or maybe even just a day, they can double their body weight to two pennies. And they're doing that because they're, they're getting the fuel necessary to be able to migrate across the Gulf of Mexico. Um, hummingbirds will fly nonstop for close to 500 miles for about 20 hours. You know, they'll leave uh, right at, you know, uh, sundown and then fly all night to go over the Gulf of Mexico. And not surprisingly, a lot of them perish. It's, it's a pretty uh, rigorous migration route. But um, people say, you know, why would hummingbirds migrate? What would be the reason for that? And uh, our ruby throats, the species we have, really the only species we get east of the Mississippi River, can't really handle temperatures around the low 20s. But the main reason is, just like most of our birds uh, that migrate, is insects. That's their main food source. So again, it really goes back to the habitat and the native plants. That's why Strawberry Plains is so unique, is that we have a large property that is managed completely for wildlife, you know, for encouraging species that are native to our area and that are important, not just in terms of uh, the food sources that they provide, but also the structure and the cover for those species. Yeah, what you said, 3,000-plus acres. Yeah, we manage. Uh, we have 2,600 2, acres at Strawberry Plains and manage about another 500. And that's working with, what, local landowners? Yeah, well, the, the, the additional portions we manage is actually mitigation land through the Mississippi Department of Transportation, okay. uh, wetland mitigation. And now you talked about uh, the native plants and, I guess, being able to um, do that at your, in your own backyard. When is the best time, I guess, to see the hummingbirds? Like you said, they, you'll, you'll have the things out, but the insects may be gone. Um, yeah, so they're going to start leaving. Uh, they'll, they'll start migrating north from uh, the southern portion of Central America and kind of stage at the Yucatan Peninsula around late uh, January, early February. And again, while they're there, they'll double their body weight. Uh bulking up on their fat, eating lots and lots of protein, and then they're going to make that um, trans-gulf flight for 20 hours nonstop and come to our area of the country, you know, around late March or so, start showing up. And the first ones you see are actually heading north. Um, They'll be heading up as far north as southern Canada. And um, oftentimes if the birds get there too early and the the plants haven't bloomed, um, some of the food sources they'll use is actually one of their friends, the yellow-bellied sapsuckers. Uh, their northern limit actually is about the same as a ruby thirty hummingbird, and so they will feed on uh, the um, nectar, or I guess not the nectar, but the sugars that are in the woodpecker holes uh, from the sap as well as the insects that are trapped in there. Um, but in terms of uh, their peak activity, it's in the spring, and then it'll slow down a bit in the summer, and you'll have two or three weeks where it just seems dead, and then all of a sudden you have an explosion of hummingbirds. And usually that's from fledglings that have left the nest that have started showing up and are coming to feed at the feeders. And they'll, you know, they'll get pretty acclimated to uh, following their parents and what their parents do pretty quick. And then again, of course, this time of year, they're really peaking. And we often get asked, when should you take your feeders down? You know, the concern is that if I don't take my hummingbird feeders down, the birds won't migrate. The birds aren't sticking around because of nectar sources. They're, they're migrating because the days are getting shorter, it's getting colder, and they know their food supply, their true food supply, insects are leaving or they're, they're going to be dying. And so that's when they know to start heading south. And what, what type of insects do they eat? It's mostly small things that would be hard to see with the naked eye. The biggest <laughs> thing would really be like a fruit fly or a mosquito. Uh, okay. Small uh, spiders, they'll often eat the eggs of uh, smaller insects as well. 
Because I know you said all kinds of little gnats gnats. that buzz around you. They're filling up on their protein, but they're not eating burgers (laughs) (laughs) or or steaks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're talking with uh, Mitchell Robinson here from the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. If you have a question or comment, or maybe you've had a great experience to the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, or even visited the Hummingbird Festival. This is their 19th year? Absolutely. Yeah, 19th. So you may have uh, had a great experience. Give us a call, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 772 Before our next break, we're going to go to another caller we have on air, uh, Dan from Van Cleve. Uh, good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you're coming through loud and clear. Okay. I was the next-door neighbor, the renter of Dr. Arthur Gunter, the founder of the Gulf Coast Research Laboratory. Oh, yes. He was oh. in a wheelchair, and uh, he had auto probably 30 or 40 hummingbird feeders around his house. And I'm from the north originally, and I had no idea about hummingbirds. And one morning I walked out and I said, Doc, I see there's no hummingbirds out here right now. Where are they? He said, they've all migrated to South America. (laughs) I said, Doc, how do they get there? They fly down to Mexico? He goes, no, they don't fly down to Mexico. I said, well, they don't go down to Florida to the dry tortugas and Cuba and all that way. He goes, no, 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 they hitchhike. (laughs) I said, what do you mean they hitchhike? He says, in the fall, when the Canadian geese go south, hundreds of hummingbirds nestle under the feathers of the Canadian geese, and they fly on the backs of the Canadian geese all the way to South America. And I went, really? He said, just watch them with binoculars, the geese, when they fly over. You'll see them coming on and off, the geese, as they fly. And I ran a charter boat out of the Broadwater for years, and I did, and they did. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I've had that controversy about that many, many times, but Dr. Arthur Gunther was uh, very unique and very intelligent, and he was on target with a lot of things, and that was one he made me a believer, and I saw it with my own eyes with binoculars, the hummingbirds landing into the nestling into the geese. Put that out there on the world. <laughs> well, we appreciate we appreciate you uh, calling this morning, Dan. Um, Libby, you were kind of shaking your head just a little bit. Is it another one of those wives' tales? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> scientific literature doesn't seem to back it up, but I- um, but Dan, Dan saw. But I don't want to fight with Gordon Gunter. Yeah, he was one of Fanny <laughs> Cook's buddies. You know, okay, he, okay. he was a young. He was like a young protege, I think, when Fanny was around. But yeah, I'll agree with Libby here. But <laughs> I, I do know, uh, you know, in the past couple of decades or so, things that are out over the Gulf, um, you know, large ships, uh, oil rigs. It's not uncommon now uh, during fall and spring migration for ruby throats, or well, I guess mostly ruby throats to uh, alight on. Uh, the rigs of oil rigs, you know, so they, they will use these as quick stopovers during their transit or trans Gulf migration. Cause I can only imagine you said they could travel up to 500 miles. Um, uh, you know, just on that flight. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think about too, I mean, we think about migration and how could a small bird like that move that far, but you know, monarch butterflies migrate, you know, uh, across the entire continent of the U S um, in just a, a few short weeks. So it's, it's not, you know, out of the realm of possibility, it's, it's certainly a fact as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's it's always fascinating with the uh, birds. But we will take a break right now, and when we come back, we're going to go through the Hummingbird Festival, which is coming up September 7th, 8th, and 9th at the uh, Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. We're talking with Mitchell Robinson. 
So make sure you call in and if you have a question or comment or an um, wildlife observation, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. This is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to be free. Blackbird, fly. Blackbird, fly. Into the light of a This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're back here on MPB Think Radio. This is Creature Conference of Java Chapman filling in for Kevin Farrell today. And we're talking with uh, Mitchell Robinson, Conservation Education Manager at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center in Holly Springs. Also sitting here with the good friends, Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And if you have a pet question, uh, Dr. Major is here ready for you. one 877 mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We have a couple callers on the line, but uh, Mitch... We have coming up September 7th, 8th, and 9th, uh, the Humminbird Festival, which is really, I looked at, I think, a, a, a schedule uh, coming up. It's jam-packed. It is jam-packed, yeah. <laughs> we The main attraction is the banding of the ruby-throated hummingbirds. We have two stations where we have a group called Southeastern Avian Research that is banding hummingbirds nine to five the whole time of the festival so you now, will when you have, say banding I, I don't know what, yeah. what is banding well with uh, bird research one of the best uh, ways that we've been able to understand that these fascinating migrations is actually from capturing birds and um, tagging them so rather than branding them like you might uh, a steer or a cow we put small metal bands around their legs that have a specific number to that bird that is you know no other bird has that number and so that's some of the research we've been doing at strawberry plains for a few years now looking at how our habitat's used for, by different migratory species. But with hummingbirds, it's a whole different story. As you can imagine, birds being that small, their legs are very tiny. The bands that go on them, you know, you have to use jeweler's glasses. They're very, very small. Um, and capturing a hummingbird is much different than how we would capture most birds, um, which we use mist nets for. So for hummingbirds, they've actually devised specific uh, little cages that go around the hummingbird feeders. And the birds fly in to get some uh, some nectar uh, from the feeder, but it's not intuitive for them to get out. And so uh, they might be in the cage for you know a couple of seconds or so, and uh, the banders can go in with a little, uh, almost like a pantyhose uh, bag, wrap it around the bird. And when the birds are in the bag, they go into their state of torpor, which is what happens uh, at night, every night actually. Uh, their heartbeats will drop from over a thousand beats a minute down to less than forty, and it's kind of like a mini coma, or uh, yeah, like kind of a mini coma where um, they shut down most of their uh, different vital systems so that they're just kind of regulating at a, at a low, low uh, speed. And the birds are very, very calm when they take them out of the bag, and so they'll check their different statistics, whether it's male or female. They can try to age it. Um, the amount of body fat on the bird, they'll get a weight of it. Oftentimes they'll weigh the bird, check, check all these vital statistics, and then let it drink from a feeder while they're wait, doing all these things, and then weigh it again, and the public can see how many, you know, small grams it's actually gained in this amount of time it's been banded and so when the bird is done being banded and all that data is recorded they uh allow the public to see it up close people can listen to its heartbeats and then they'll usually let an 
a small child or you know an older individual release the bird from their palm, which is quite a remarkable experience. Now, I I, I kind of understand a little bit for those who may not. I hope you can answer this question. What is the I guess the larger benefit? Because that sounds that sounds like a lot mm-hmm. to do to band a little bitty hummingbird. Why would we want to do that? Study the hummingbirds, learn about them in the the grander ecosystem, I guess. Yeah, well, it's to understand more about the birds themselves because hummingbirds can be a um, a kind of gateway into understanding a lot about other animal biology. Um, hummingbirds, if you look at let's say um, the plants that they use, um, hummingbirds time their arrival in the spring uh, based upon when you know most insects are going to be beginning to emerge and start feeding on different plants but also the nectar sources that they need. And so for ruby-throated hummingbirds, the plant that they associate with during their first arrival is our native buckeye, the red buckeye. And those flowers and the buckeyes that are formed in the late summer and fall are only pollinated by hummingbirds. So without one, you don't have the other. Um, things we've been looking at, for instance, in terms of uh, climate change, if winters are a lot milder, we might have spring arriving a lot sooner. So if the birds arrive and those nectar sources are not available, what are they going to feed on? So that's that's one example of why this is really important. Uh, another is to be able to understand how, how their preference changes uh, dependent upon habitats. And so what they found through the banding is that if, if individuals go to the same locations and capture hummingbirds each year, they're finding that they're having individuals that return to the calendar day of when they arrived mm-hmm. over a year ago. Um, we, you know, um, along with that though, the, the lifespan of a hummingbird is very small. You know, it's only a few years. And like I said, majority of the birds born each year do not return in the spring. Uh, it's a pretty treacherous flight, just their migration. Um, but living at that high of a speed is not very easy either. Uh, you need a lot of resources. Um, and so, uh, being able to understand, you know, the, the capacity that these birds have, um, in terms of all their needs, as well as the importance of these habitats, is really crucial. Well, yeah, I, I can only imagine about the the different types of data that you can get from banding a bird, and to just you know want to know how that played in the larger larger yeah. scheme. Well, and during our our other banding research we do at Strawberry Plains, we we do not have permits to band hummingbirds, but we've had hummingbirds end up in our mist nets. And this year, uh, the we had one in the spring, in the late spring, then we have one this summer. And sure enough, both those birds, um, one of them was banded, uh, I think, back in 2016 by Bob Sargent, who he and his wife started the, I guess maybe in 2015 or so, but started the hummingbird uh, banding group uh, that, that started this research. So it's pretty cool to see a bird that's uh, starting its fall migration that had been banded several years prior at the same, coming through the same location to feed. Let's go uh, back to the phone lines. We have a couple calls on on uh, hold. Let's go to Susan in Memphis. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Um, I have a question uh, about the about the plant sale at the at Strawberry Fields. Um, what are the what are good uh, fall flowering plants? I most of the plants I see they're all they'll bloom in the spring or summer. So, can you recommend some good fall? flowering plants that would provide nectar for hummingbirds on their migration? Yeah, uh, some great fall ones. Um, jewelweed is a very cool one that has these orange-yellow blooms. Uh, it um, spreads prolifically by seed. Uh, I've actually had, outside my office, we have a lot of it, and the hummingbirds right now aren't coming to the feeders as much because, not surprisingly, why, why have the fake stuff if you can have the real stuff? So they've been going to the jewelweed a lot lately. Um, trumpet vine is another one. Uh, a lot of folks might consider this a weed because it also grows 
uh, quite profusely and it's flowering right now. It'll fl flower through the fall. Um, that's one that you can get pretty readily out in wild areas. The, the seeds come in these large pods. Uh, cardinal flower is another one, our lobelias. Um, it tends to be in wetter areas, but it blooms in late summer into the fall. Um, and then most, most of our, the other, uh, flowering stuff, you know, it's, it's done, like you said, by, by late summer. Um, Dr. Major was just saying that he had some uh, native honeysuckle, which I can't emphasize enough. Uh, our coral honeysuckle is really what you want to plant. Japanese honeysuckle is highly, highly invasive. It's the stuff I grew up eating as a kid along my fence row. <laughs> but those white, yellow blooms uh, certainly encourage you to eat every one of those you see. But it's it's probably our, our top two invasive plants, particularly in the southeast, if not Mississippi. But, yeah, our coral honeysuckle is fantastic, and it, it'll bloom throughout the whole summer. Um, Dr. Major said his is still blooming right now. Um, but that's, that's one that also is only pollinated by hummingbirds. Well, did that help you out, uh, Susan? All right. I think she got, uh, what she needed. Cause at this, uh, at the, the 19th annual hummingbird migration and nature celebration, uh, you're going to have the native plant sale. Yep. Um, also you're going to have, uh, different things for the kids, um, events. Yeah. So we've got three full tents where we have speakers every hour on the hour, starting at 10, uh, and all the way through four o'clock. We'll have, uh, one of our representatives from the National Audubon that leads our Plants for Birds program, talking more about this importance of native plants for supporting uh, birds and other wildlife. Um, as you said, we've got a whole kids' tent area where we have one tent that's uh, all activities, uh, hands-on activities for kids to engage about different concepts about the natural world, focus on hummingbirds, focus on native plants, uh, skins and schools. Uh, then we have a, a three-speaker tents during the festival. We also do wagon rides out on the property. One of the cool things this year is we've got two new tandem wagons that uh, have doubled our capacity, so we'll be able to take even more people out on the property to show them the different areas we manage for wildlife into native wildflower meadows and native warm season grass areas. Um, we also have a big arts and crafts vendor area, which is an attraction for a lot of people um, that's all nature-themed. And then one of the cool things at the festival this year, it's a new partnership between the National Audubon Society and Canon Photography is we are going to have a tent where Canon is going to have um, a whole array of different cameras, lenses, binoculars for the public to try out wow. and really check out for the day. Um, so if you're a camera or a kind of a tech buff, uh, this is definitely something you want to hit up. We're actually going to have uh, three different tours each day, uh, two options for each tour that are going to be led by Audubon naturalists and Canon photography experts, where you're going to get to have your hands on some of these, you know, several thousand dollar lenses and cameras to get to try them out for about an hour. One tour is going to go around the property out on a wagon ride. They'll be guided to take you out to some of our cool bird blinds and different ponds and grassland areas, take photographs of things. And then the other one goes around the main campus to our hummingbird banding station, our plant sale, and those will all be guided by Audubon naturalists and Canon experts. And then let's say you have a camera that you just got and you don't know how the heck to use it. Uh, bring <laughs> it with you. There are going to be lots of people there to answer your questions, show you tips, um, do some shopping for some camera stuff. In addition to the different arts and crafts vendors and our Audubon tent. And then if you sign up for those guided tours, um, which you can see through our website, uh, at the end of it, whatever you shot, you can get to print out uh, and take those home with you too. 
Yeah, that's I um I used to own a, a camera back in the day, so uh the EOS six D and all those other high end models, uh that's that's gonna be really cool to seven D for people who um know what I'm talking about. Uh we're gonna go ahead and take our last break for the hour. Um we're gonna talk some more about the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center and the upcoming Hummingbird Festival with uh, Mitchell Robinson. We also have a couple calls on the line, and you can maybe squeeze in uh, before the end of the show. one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 We'll come back with more Creature Comforts after the break. Hummingbirds hum when they fly Oh, what fun we're humming Humming this hummingbird song No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. And we're back. This is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman, along with Libby Hartfield and Dr. Troy Major. We're sitting here with Mitchell Robinson, Conservation Education Manager at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. And if you missed any of part of today's show, you can always listen back on our website, mpbonline.org. Also, subscribe to the podcast or get to us via our MPB public media app. Uh, we're going to go to Mikey from Mobile. I want to say thank you for holding first, Mikey, and uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, as I was calling, as I was dialing the number, I looked out the window here and actually saw a little hummingbird. And uh, she, I believe it's a she because she was not that brightly colored. It was not that brightly colored. I'm sure the, 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 uh, um, your, your guest can educate me if that's not correct. Um, but was really, really working these, um, as he said, cardinal flowers. But the other thing that I have that I grow because they grow themselves actually, and I'm, you know, if you're going to garden, you know, be as lazy as possible, right? Um, four o'clocks, and uh, I just checked the the time so that I could report. It's it was nine forty nine a.m. here in my little little space, um, and the four o'clocks were have just closed up, but the cardinal flowers stay open all the time. So that is is a source of nectar for them, but uh, I just wanted to point that out because the four o'clock will be reopening again at four okay. this afternoon. Um, uh, and as I say, they grow themselves. I also have some um, some wild kinds of forms of the uh, uh, the heavenly blue morning glories, which are family to the cardinal flowers. But I have a question. Okay, go ahead. Um, I I don't know why I think about these weird things in the middle of the night, but I woke up and I started thinking, you never see a picture of a hummingbird with its beak open. You only see pictures, you know, because I guess that the only ones you can capture are when the... So how does the mother hummingbird... I mean, other birds have these little chicks with big, wide mouths. <laughs> how does the mother hummingbird manage to feed those babies? Wow, that's a good question, Mikey. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so if you um, look up, you know, you can Google it like anything in the world, but um, the beaks of, of hummingbirds in the nest when they were young uh, are very, very wide, and they're short and stocky. 
And so those beaks will change a lot as the birds grow uh, while they're in the nest in a pretty short time frame. Um, and, you know, looking up videos of hummingbirds, you know, you can look up them actually uh, feeding on insects. That's really the only time you're going to see those beaks, beaks opening up and snapping like that, too. Um, I know one of the things I saw when aging hummingbirds is if they have white on the interior of the beak, that's one of the easy ways to know if they're juvenile, but I think very few people actually get to see that. <laughs> Let's go uh, to Dudley from Calhoun County, who's been holding. Uh, good morning, Dudley. How are you? Good morning. This is a wonderful program. I have a trite observation I'd like to talk about. I notice on my bird feeder, on my hummingbird feeder, that sometimes, like bees or wasps, get on the feeder and they will chase the hummingbirds off. Is this unusual or is this common? Yeah, so a lot of people say uh, hummingbirds are only attracted to red flowers and it's actually, um, most insects do not see the color red or when they see red, they see it as the same color as green. So a lot of the flowers that are pollinated by hummingbirds or that they feed on are in that color spectrum. Um, what usually happens with wasps or, or bees particularly is that they get locked in on the scent of a um, a thing or a plant or a particularly a feeder if it gets saturated with a lot of sugar water and they're going to start congregating to there. Um, the best thing that I've found for getting uh, them away from a feeder is one, take that feeder that they're congregating to and separate it from the others. An easy thing to do is to get a cookie sheet that's got a kind of a little bit of an edge on it or a lip. Just put a couple of rocks in there to hold it down and pour some sugar water in there. Um, something else I should say, the ratio for nectar to making is, uh, if you've got a hand, five fingers, four parts water, uh, yeah, four parts water, one part sugar, um, I would double that if you're going to be using it for nectar for bees. And once you move that feeder away from the other feeders, usually the bees will congregate to it, and you can kind of move it you know, to the side of the yard or something and then start hanging your feeders back up. I hope they helped you out, uh, Dudley. We're uh, moving toward the end of the program. And uh, Libby, I know you wanted to mention something before we got out of here with... Uh, oh, just a couple more birding activities. Terra Wildlife is having a birding weekend this weekend, August the 24th, 25th, 26th. Um, it'll start uh, tomorrow evening, that's the 24th, and run through the weekend. So get in touch with them online if you want to go to that. It's a lot of fun. I'll be over there. And then Jackson Audubon is having a field trip to St. Catherine's Creek down Oh, kind of Natchez area, and it's a great place to bird. They'll uh, you'll probably see wood storks and ibis. Um, real fun place to go, and um, they do that in the afternoon, so it's kind of four o'clock to eight o'clock. Real cool out, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Mitch, we were talking a little bit off of air, like all our best conversations are. Uh, sorry, everybody who's listening now, uh, <laughs> about <laughs> that one of the best parts about the Hummingbird Festival is just the congregation of people, just a different amount of people that you um see there, especially um, your volunteers that come out. Um, you know, speak about how it's just a, a, a a good migration of different people that come together every year. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the best representation I've seen of what makes Mississippi, Mississippi in terms of community involvement. Uh, the festival started 19 years ago with just a dozen people coming out to watch hummingbirds feed during this big migration. And within five years, and you know, tripled, then it was about 100 people. And then when we started getting the hummingbird banding, it got bigger. And it's grown into this event that uh, really is a thing in and of itself. Um, the little population of Holly Springs will double for three days. Uh, our staff is just four or five people, and so we are 100% dependent on volunteers. Uh, we'll have anywhere from 100 to 100, 
75 uh, people come out to volunteer for this festival. And, um, you know, like I've said, there's so many different aspects. It's hard to convey, you know, in a few sentences. But from the arts and crafts vendors, the kids' tent area to the wagon rides, you know, we have these these phenomenal, renowned guest speakers. You know, we have folks that come back year after year, always try to get new folks. We're going to have um, Libby up there with her friends Marion and Kathy to be doing the talk about Fanny Cook, you know, Mississippi's first conservationist. Uh, Tammy Greer is a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, an Ahoma uh, Indian that is going to be speaking about Native American um, folklore, about uh, hummingbirds, some really cool stories about, as she describes it, you know, our, our ancient uh, ancestors and, and brethren. Um, also talking about the importance of Native plants and uh, Native American Mississippian culture. Um, there's also going to be a group from World Bird Sanctuary. It's the premier raptor rehabilitation center up in St. Louis, Missouri. They're going to be bringing down live birds of prey that they're going to be flying actually during their program. So you're going to see things from Harris's hawks, different falcons, uh, bald eagles, hopefully a golden eagle will be coming. So that's that's the first time we've had them and should be a really cool attraction. Yeah, like it's it's a lot, not just a, a little hummingbird festival. Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, the happening at the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center 7th. 8th and 9th, so three days of lots of activities. And for more information, strawberry.audubon.org is the um, is the website. Mitch, I really want to thank you for uh, coming up here today, man. No, this is a treat. This is a treat. Yeah, we've been dispelling a lot of a lot of good information. And before we get out of here, let's say somebody just tuned in. They want to have uh, some hummingbirds at their house. What's that? The the nectar ratio again? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, four parts water to one part sugar. And you don't have to boil it. Please, please, please do not add food coloring and don't buy it at a store. Just get your general raw sugar tap water, and you don't need to boil it. Just get it hot enough that the sugar dissolves. I like to use Arizona tea jugs to to get my proportions right, and we can store it in the fridge if you don't use it all. Okay, and so hopefully you can have some hummingbirds there um, in a couple weeks, maybe. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, thanks for coming in. Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded in part by generous contributions from listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous shows, visit mpbonline.org slash creatureconference. Today's show was engineered and DJed by Michelle McAdoo. Our call screener was also the awesome Michelle McAdoo. For Dr. Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Mitchell Robinson, I'm Java Chapman. And up next is our our Thursday 10 a.m. show, MPB Season Pass with Jay White. Stay tuned, and coming up is Season Pass. You're listening to MPB Think Radio.